Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We've been on a little summer break, and we'll be back with uh, fresh episodes starting next week. But this week, we're republishing an episode on risk that you did, Jim, and... Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, that was a fun episode. Richard, I think you were in California or something when we did this interview, but Allison is a great guest with a really uh, fresh perspective on thinking about risk. As we try to make ourselves better, Richard, you and I both listen to a lot of other podcasts, and you heard something recently you think we might shamelessly copy. Yes, Jim, I think that we could do a better job of getting more people to listen to us, so I'm listening to other podcasts to see what they do. You're going to borrow some of their marketing techniques. Exactly. This is a pretty good example from a British show called FT Politics. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a good positive review. We'll look for more examples of things we can shamelessly imitate in the coming weeks. But now on to this week's show, which is about risk. An economist walks into a brothel, Alison Schrager. You take risks to get what you want out of life. You're never going to get what you want without taking risks. In your career, in your personal life, there's always risks we're taking, but we are much more likely to have a risk go well if we're taking a risk because it brings us what we want. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, I was away last week finishing up my uh, vacation in California, and you got into some risky behavior. Well, not risk taken by me exactly, although, as you know, I've broken a few bones doing my various sports. But I was looking at risks taken by others, including surfers in Hawaii, horse breeders in Kentucky, paparazzi photographers in New York, and yes, sex workers at a legal brothel in Nevada. You took a walk through risk speaking with an economist, a retirement expert, about some vital lessons in life from hedging, diversification, leverage, and insurance. Our guest is Allison Schrager, an economist and journalist. She's the founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, a risk advisory firm. And her writing has appeared in Quartz, Wired, The Economist, Business Week, and other fine publications. And her new book is called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Now, it's hard to resist 
opening with the chapter that gives your book its title, Allison. So tell us a little bit about what you learned at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch in Nevada. Well, I mean, anyone's going to learn a lot in a brothel about many things. But I went there to learn negotiation skills. They have a fairly extensive negotiation training program to teach the women how to, because every transaction there is negotiated. And while I was there, I was just shocked how much money they charged. Especially I'd done some writing on sex work in the past, and it was just like many multiples higher than what sex workers charge elsewhere for similar quality services. So I I was really just intrigued by this and the sort of people who go to the brothel and for the reasons they do, and I discovered it was a risk story. And I discovered that there was this huge markup that customers pay for what they see as a risk-free experience. And not only that, you know, I think what horrifies a lot of other people is that the women have to give 50% of their earnings to the brothel. So that seems unfair on its face, but they, for them, they make the calculation that's a good deal. Exactly. And what's interesting is, I mean, I think that, you know, you're, especially when it was Dennis Hoff who was alive, people saw and Dennis it. Hoff was the legendary... Uh, founder of the, this chain of legal brothels in Nevada and who kind of revolutionized the business, right? He did. And he was a very inter- – he, he sort of was very proudly would call himself a pimp. Like he was reclaim- – he'd even say, I'm reclaiming the term. Um, and it really was reclaiming the term because when I think of pimp, I think of someone forcing women into real – or any male or female sex workers into very risky situations. They bear all the risk you know, either with violent customers or getting caught by the police and then take all the return. But Dennis Hoff did something quite different. His value add was safety. That 50% represented that these women can do their work safely. They don't have to worry about being caught by the police. They don't have to worry about the risk of violence from customers. And customers, on the other hand, also pay this huge premium. And that spread is where he makes his money, is actually providing a value out of safety. For both the the workers and, and their clients. It's a good deal because it's less risky. How is it less risky? Well, it's less risky for the customers because, think about it, if you hire a sex worker online, there's a lot of risk involved. It could be, I was just reading that they're now using AI, where if you contact a sex worker online, you could be talking to a bot who actually is law enforcement. So that's a serious risk. You don't, or even if you do end up with a legitimate sex worker, you could get caught. I mean, think of Elliot Spitzer or Robert Kraft. I mean, this is a high-risk situation. Or even just something more unsavory. The the uh, provider could beat you up. They could blackmail you. I mean, there's a lot of risk involved. You don't know about diseases in some cases. Um, and for the sex worker, there's even more risk. I mean, they also are subject to arrest, to violence. Uh, they have much higher rates of homicide than other women. Now, and the reason you went to Nevada is it's one of the few places in America where in certain counties, these brothels are actually legal. Yes, they are licensed and very tightly regulated. I want to go through a few terms that people have heard, but that you can help us learn a little bit more about. So mm-hmm. let's start with the concept of hedging, the, the process of managing risks either up mm-hmm. or down. And I want you to tell the story of David Bowie. All right. So hedging is simply, it sounds so simple, but it's actually quite technical, which is taking less risk. You know, in finance, you have something called a risk-free asset, and then you have a risky asset. So it could be, you know, a treasury bond and, you know, stock portfolio. And finding how much of your portfolio percentage-wise goes in each is a hedge. You move out of stocks into something less risky. 
So there's a positive hedge and there's a negative hedge. And a negative hedge is just leverage. And everything we're going to talk about today is everything people do in Wall Street, just in really complicated combinations. So, so da- David Bowie was getting started in his career. And he exactly. And unexpectedly had kind of a head for these concepts. Exactly. He was a 17, 18-year-old struggling musician in London, and he got his record deal. And normally when you get a record deal, they give you an advance, and in exchange, they pretty much own all your music royalties. So if your song takes off and makes hundreds of millions of dollars, the record company keeps all the money. And I that's mean, why musicians always complain they're poor. And you've heard this story a million times in the music business. And it sounds horribly unfair, but it's actually a decent risk transaction because most of these people they sign are not going to make any money, but they still keep their advance. So the record company is effectively taking a risk on you. They give you this pile of money. Odds are your royalties are worthless anyway, but you still keep that money. But that odd person becomes David Bowie, and those royalties are worth a ton, and the record company gets the upside. So, But David Bowie, even when he was this young guy, completely unknown, gets his record deal. Most most kids would be psyched, especially to get a big chunk of money. He was like, no, I always want to own my music. So he took a much smaller advance so he could retain his royalties. It's effectively a negative hedge. And that turned out to be a really good bet because he's David Bowie. (laughs) But then fast forward a couple decades later, this is late 40s, early 50s. And uh, it's about the days Napster is coming along and transforming. People didn't know what it would mean for the music industry, but he was starting to think, I'm not sure these royalties are going to be worth so much anymore. Uh, it looks he, – he, he said he had amazing foresight. And this is the early days of Napster. He's like, music industry is going to change. Royalties aren't going to be worth what they used to and be. And he was also an older artist who probably wasn't that likely to have another space oddity or gene genie. So he was starting to think, well, maybe I could do something with these royalties. And so he met this banker named David Pullman who worked in mortgage securitization. So he's like, we could securitize your royalties. So what they did is they turned his music royalties and they took this new release – and use that as an excuse, into a bond. So effectively, then he ended up selling his royalties, although he still technically retained ownership of them, and took the opposite bet all these years later. So he hedged later. He took a negative hedge when he was young, which is what you should do, and then less risk when he was older. He took a smaller share of a more certain kind of income. Well, he took the upfront payment. He got $50 million, and then I think it was Prudential, owned his royalties for like 10 or 15 years. That's great. Now let's talk about the concept of insurance. Mm -hmm. And you have a wonderful example here, someone who works as a professional magician. Yeah. You know, hedging is normally, it's very intuitive, right? If you take less risk, you get less reward, but you have less downside. It's all very simple. But insurance does something really amazing, and I think magical, which is why I spoke to a magician, which is you get rid of the downside, but you keep all the upside. And the way that happens in markets is you pay someone and they take on that downside risk for you. But that's only one way you can do it. I mean, insurance can mean any time you have this contingency plan in case something happens. So with Belinda Sinclair, the magician, it's, you know, this huge risk that tricks can go wrong. and Which happens more than we in the audience recognize, doesn't it? All the it? time. Like, people are always very interested in how do you do that? How do you get that trick to work? I think a much more interesting question to ask magicians is how did you save a trick? Because, you know, that is actually a lot more interesting and also it takes a lot more skill. And also, because that's their insurance, their half is like, if a trick goes wrong, can I save it? Because you, once you lose trust of the audience, you've lost everything. So how does she do it? Well, 
she is so attuned to what we're all doing. She invests a lot in making sure that we trust her, that our eyes go where she wants. And because she'll do little things. Like she was telling me how she does a lot of card tricks and you have to find the card. And sometimes she's like, I don't know what card this is. So she'll always say things like, take a look at the deck and let's just make sure your card is still there. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And so, but we trust her because she's built, I mean, if you go to her show, she builds up a lot of trust to the point where you're like, oh, here's my, oh, you know, and that is effectively her insurance. So she puts in the time building up that trust and and giving herself some outs in case uh, something goes off the rails where the audience won't necessarily, won't even know that that wasn't part of the plan. And very intense concentration and being very attuned to you, which is, I mean, I, I've I've worked with magicians before and I found that a lot of them, not Belinda, have a lot of backgrounds as con artists mm-hmm. because uh, it's so much about manipulating people is playing on their needs. And, 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 and funny, you've also worked in the financial business. <laughs> so next concept, diversification. Mm-hmm. And for this one, we're going to travel to Versailles, not the French <laughs> <laughs> palace, but a region of Kentucky. Yes. So we're talking about the Three Chimneys Stud Farm, and this mm-hmm. is the business when there's a winning racehorse or yeah. is breeding future, hopefully winning racehorses, and people invest insane amounts of money in this. There's a lot of money in stud fees. I mean, this is where the money is. I mean, it's not in winning races. I mean, I the, I saw a couple horses breed. I saw Gut Runner, and then later I went to another horse and met Warfront, who's getting $250,000 a session. Gunrunner, I think, at that point was getting seventy. dollars So it's kind of the opposite of your previous visit to Nevada, in a sense. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. But yeah, it actually is, considering I started the book in a brothel, probably the most sexual chapter. (laughs) I mean, it was was graphic. I mean, obviously, I didn't see that at the brothel. I just was talking business with people. You know, it's all hanging out at the stud farms. Mm -hmm. So this rather graphic thing I saw, you know, when I saw with Gunrunner, it cost $70,000. And he's going to do that maybe three times a day, every day. He might breed 700 times a season. Wow. So where's the risk in that? That sounds like a pretty good business to be in. Well, here's the thing is you want to make a horse that's a good racer. You want to bring together these very particular characteristics. It's like building a portfolio. You want perfect diversification is one stock's up, the other's down. But the thing is about horse breeding is when you breed a horse, you sell it after one year. You don't breed it to race. And no one knows how good a racer a horse is going to be after a year. It's not racing yet. They only know who their parents are. So the fact that the whole breeding industry effectively sells the horse at one year means the only thing you really know is who its parents are. So that means there's this huge premium on a very small pool of desirable sires. When you're doing, when you're taking these two stars together, is you're bringing together a, a, a bunch of freaky characteristics. And, you know, the odds are good you're going to end up in the lower tail. And it's like a horse that just can't race at all. But there's a there's a tail chance that you might end up in that really good secretariat category. But if you just want to have a more predictable rate of return, you'd be better off in terms of racing. You would probably diversify the gene pool more, pay less for a star stud, and just be more in the center of the distribution and have a horse with a solid racing career. So diversification there means a more dependable kind of middle-of-the-road strategy as opposed to hoping that you're way out on one end of this distribution. Yeah, it's like buying a single stock, like buying Facebook or Amazon versus buying an index fund. Right. So 
Now, idiosyncratic versus systematic risk. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell us about your nights stalking celebrities. Um, Yeah, so it turns out I live right near Gigi Hadid. So I would always see the paparazzi looking for her, and I figured there must be a story there. So it turns out, if you think about it, they have very complex risk lives because the odds that they get that money shot in any given day is so unpredictable. Or even any given year. That they face a large amount of what we call idiosyncratic risk, which is risk that's individual to a stock that will go up and down, not related to other stocks. And so each individual paparazzo bears a lot of idiosyncratic risk, like the risk that this is going to be the day, or that even if they're all taking that picture, I'm going to get the one where the Gigi's head is turned just so, and everyone's going to want to run that picture because, you know, what makes a good shot is, is actually a lot more technical than people realize. And so the way you deal with idiosyncratic risk In financial markets, is you diversify. That's why you hold an index fund. You can completely eliminate idiosyncratic risk if you just own enough stocks. And it turns out the paparazzi do something very similar and that they form these alliances of other paparazzo. And they share tips and sometimes they work in teams and they share royalties or just sometimes just tips. But the problem is you have a lot more money if it's an exclusive shot. So you always have this incentive to withhold a tip. And often they do. So these alliances are very unstable and they're always falling apart. So they all kind of hate each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of stressful being out with them because there's a lot of like bad history amongst all of them. And this isn't even the worst of it. That's always been true. Now they're facing a much more difficult risk, something to some degree everyone faces, which is systematic risk, which is the risk that affects the whole system. Because in like the aughts, mid-aughts, there was what they call, and this is the technical name, not something I made up, called the paparazzi gold rush, which was like the heyday of Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, Mm -hmm. where the paps would get, I don't know, like $15,000 for a picture of a celebrity getting coffee. What used to be $15,000, this might be like five. And the the difference is the decline of newsstand magazines and the rise of people getting their celebrity news online. As the magazines wanted more pictures for less money, they just got squeezed. Right. So let's talk about big wave surfing. Uh-huh. This is another place that you went. You went to the, the North Shore of Hawaii, mm-hmm. the famous origin zone of really intense big wave surfing. And you used that to explain the idea of leverage. And Mm -hmm. and one of the points you made I thought was really interesting is sometimes a new technology will allow people, give them an opportunity to lever up their Mm -hmm. risk. So let's talk about how the invention of the jet ski or the use of the jet ski in surfing changed surfing. Yeah, so technology is normally intended to make us safer. But... Originally, when jet skis were introduced to surfing, uh, they were used as like insurance. If you're in the water and you wipe out, a jet ski is there to rescue you, and it's really saved a lot of lives. Because often these waves are so big that if you wipe out on one, even before you, can, as soon as you come up for air, there's another big wave pushing you 30 feet underwater. Yeah. If that happens three or four times, you, you could be killed. Exactly. Or, I mean, you're just in really, like, intense water really far out to sea, so the fact someone can just sort of swoop by in a jet ski and pick you up is a real game changer. And it really was. And obviously that emboldens people to take more risks. They feel safer. But even more than that was... You know, there's only so a human body can only uh, is only so strong in bigger waves travel faster than smaller waves. So there was always a limit on the size of wave a human could paddle out on because you need to get your surfboard moving forward Mm -hmm. at 
more or less the same speed as the wave in, exactly. order to, in order to be able to catch that wave and stand up. Exactly. So you couldn't surf more than a 30, maybe 40-foot wave. But then with jet skis, I think it was Laird Hamilton and his friends first started realizing, oh, we can use a jet ski just to push us on that big wave. They'd have a rope, and they would tow the surfer, yeah. and the jet ski would veer off and not go down the face of the wave. Exactly. So now people are surfing like 80-foot waves. So it's only do they feel safer, but they actually are effectively taking leverage. This is how like a jet ski is a lot like a stock option, which is also insurance, but can also be flipped around to take more leverage. And so these surfers are taking more risk, and they're not just heedlessly saying, let's go take a bunch of risks. They actually think pretty seriously about it. Yeah, I actually, uh, where I met all these people is I went to a big wave surfer risk conference in Hawaii. And, you know, being a retirement economist, I've been to a lot of risk conferences in my time. But, uh, and it was in some ways like a lot like it. We were in a windowless conference room uh, looking at PowerPoints with lots of numbers on it um, because they said they're quite nerdy about even learning how to find the right wave. Um, and yeah, they are having big debates, not only about different techniques they can do to take less risk, but also having the same debates we're having in finance right now, which is about responsibility. And when you take these huge risks and you pose risks to others, where does responsibility lie? Should we depend on individuals to police themselves? That's never realistic because, as you were saying earlier, is often when you get a community of people who are distinguishing themselves by taking bigger and bigger risks, you know, people sometimes lose sight. And is it realistic to let individuals have to manage themselves, or is there some external force that should regulate them? And what do you think? I think it's a combination of all of them. I don't think we should let people off the hook, but I think there are reasons why people take too much risk and particularly don't account for the risk they're posing to others. So if somebody gets in one of those big waves, enabled by a jet ski, and they really don't have the skills, and they're more likely to wipe out, then somebody's got mm-hmm. to zoom in there and, and try to rescue them in a very dangerous situation. Yeah. Also, they're diverting rescue resources from someone who really does belong there. Or it's just traumatic for everyone if someone dies. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is How Do We Fix It? Richard was away when we recorded this interview, but... Through some magical distortion of the space-time continuum, he'll be back for our joint conversation at the end of the show. We're speaking with economist Allison Schrager about risk. Let's talk a little bit about solutions. I think the whole show has touched on how people think about risk and helping us in our lives think about risk. But it's easy to assume that the point of studying risk is to minimize it. Mm -hmm. But you say the real question is, how do I take smarter risks? How can we do that in our personal lives? Well, I think, that, you know, I go through, as I said, hedging and insurance and diversification, which is 
all anyone's ever doing on Wall Street. And all any anytime someone's giving you financial advice, they're doing one of those things. You take risks to get what you want out of life. You're never going to get what you want without taking risks. In your career, in your personal life, there's always risks we're taking, but we are much more likely to have a risk go well if we're taking a risk because it brings us what we want. So if we're just very thoughtful and every time we take a risk, be like, well, what is the best case scenario? And is this something I actually want? Is this a risk worth taking for me? The odds that a risk will work out is much higher. You say that most people have a hard time thinking probabilistically. Uh, we overemphasize some risks and we tend to ignore others. How do people do this? Again, kind of in their everyday lives. Well, I think that people get a bad rap when it comes to understanding risk. I mean, it's very popular to say people are hopeless at understanding risk, but I don't think that's true at all. I think what the research shows in psychology is that people, we were, we are evolved to take risk, obviously. Being primitive man was a very risky situation. Surviving um, most of human history, people lived with unthinkable risks. But we've evolved to think about risk in very particular environments. The research shows that if you think in terms of natural frequencies instead of probabilities, that people actually make very sensible, intuitive risk decisions. And that's just instead of saying there's a 1% chance, just say there's a 1 in 100 chance. And just reframing risk in those terms seems to make a huge difference with behavior. Thank you, Allison Schrager. Thank you. Richard, we took a little bit of a risk on this episode for going our usual format of jointly interviewing our guests since you were away. And I bravely went it alone, something we've done once or twice before. How do you think it worked out? Yeah, it worked out pretty well, Jim. You did a good job on your own. And, and, one, of, <laughs> and, and one of the things I liked was how you walked through uh, with Allison some of the basics of of investing. You know, we all deal with risk in our life choices. And finance sounds incredibly complicated. And I think many of us kind of glaze over and avoid the money pages of our uh, favorite news sites. But the principles of investment often rest on some surprisingly simple and basic concepts, such as diversification, hedging, leverage, and insurance. Normally, you're the guy who's more up to speed on the financial elements of of life, and we've done a lot of shows on that. It's something you've worked on a lot in your career. On the other hand, I'm really interested in all these areas of non-financial risk. You know, I used to be a rock climber, and I do a lot of stupid, dangerous sports, and um, and so I've spent a lot of time thinking about how people calculate risk, and it's interesting. And the point of Allison's book is how many similarities there are between the tactics that a, a surfer might take or, or other people involved in activities we don't usually uh, connect to, you know, planning your retirement portfolio. But a lot. Yeah, I thought I, I, I thought I thought one of the most interesting parts of the interview was when Allison talked about those surfers. In, in a very kind of nerdy way, spending days in a windowless room talking about very technical aspects of risk. Yes, and having spent a lot of time with people who do a, a various kinds of extreme sports, you know, they're not ignoring risks, and they take them very seriously, and they plan for them very carefully. But don't always believe them when they say they've got it all figured out. 
you know, I, I, I recently watched the movie, the Oscar-winning documentary, The Wall, about Eric Honhold, the climber who climbed El Capitan, the most dramatic, sheer cliff in North America, without any ropes at all. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, he's such a good climber. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's mapped it all out. He keeps a journal. But, in fact, when you watch the movie, you see the guys on his own film crew turning away. They can't even watch it because they're expert climbers themselves. They know how close he is to the line. Um, So I think that as much as these concepts of risk are rooted in some fundamental principles, we can also habituate ourselves to risk and get used to taking more risk. If we're in a culture that rewards risk-taking, we all kind of creep towards a riskier and riskier behavior, which you saw in the financial crisis. Yeah, and we'll have a link to Allison's book on our website, howdowefixit.me. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And this is How Do We Fix It, produced by Miranda Schaefer and music by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. If you want to turn your ideas into exciting audio, then look at our website, DaviesContent.com. And let me and let me let me interrupt your spiel for a second, Richard. I want to. You've been working on some pretty interesting side projects with Davies Content. Do you have a minute to just talk about a couple of them? Yeah, uh, one of the side projects we've been working on is with uh, the International Organization for Migration, talking about the personal stories of, of migrants and, and refugees. The show is called A Way Home Together. Uh, we're going to be launching with a well-known leadership company, a podcast shortly about some of the lessons that CEOs learn on the path to leadership success. And uh, we've also been making podcasts with One Day University and Haggerty Insurance on classic cars. So it's been a, a path full of variety. And one other podcast that just launched a couple of weeks ago that we're pretty excited about and have served as consultants on is Crosstown with Pat Kiernan of New York One, the local cable news channel here. And it's a fascinating look every week into different people and ideas behind the the changing face of New York City. So that's some of the other projects from Davies Content. But for now, this is How Do We Fix It? Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.